the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Antithesis. My name is Owen Strand, and I'll be your host. In Protestant circles, we have all heard about the five solas, and we've heard about the fifth and final sola, soli deo gloria. Many of us have read about this. Many of us think about the glory of God in biblical perspective, and it's right that we do so. But it's important to ask a question about soli deo gloria, SDG, if you will. What did the reformers mean? when they pursued the glory of God as the end of all things. In today's podcast, I want to consider this theme briefly with you. At the outset, it's important to state, and you may never have heard this before, I'm not sure, that the reformers did not themselves come up with the five solas. The five solas were developed only in the 20th century as a coherent system of five. It is actually true that Soli Deo Gloria was the first of the solas to be referenced, even though it is the last of the solas usually to be named. It was Bach, the musician, the composer, who would write Soli Deo Gloria, or more simply, SDG, at the end of his musical compositions in order to signify that he was a Christian and that everything he had done in the piece that one had just heard or one had just read in terms of the musical sheets was for the glory of God. None of this was for Bach, for his glory, above all else. All the work he had done, all his composing and cultivating work in a craftsmanship kind of sense, was for the glory of God. What a beautiful illustration of what Soli Deo Gloria really should be about. And more broadly, beyond even the 16th century Protestant Reformation, what every Christian's life should be about in terms of living for the glory of God. You do not need to be in pastoral ministry. You do not need to be on the mission field in order for your life to count for God, in order for you to be a vessel of God's glory. We know this not from any musician or any theologian, of course. We know this because it's what the scripture teaches us quite plainly. 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us in a discussion on food laws, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. There is no restriction then for the Christian placed on some activities alone as glorifying God. Whatever you do, Paul says to the Corinthian church, do it to God's glory. In other words, do it in order to honor God, in order to show him as the great God that he is. You, in so many words, Paul is saying, be a living display and testimony and witness of the greatness of God in every part of your life. What did the reformers do then in recovering this doctrine in the 16th century? How did they seize on a mentality of doing whatever they did to the glory of God, 15 centuries after Paul wrote those words. 
to the Corinthian church. First, the reformers located glory in God alone, not an ecclesial body, by which I mean the Catholic Church. The reformers saw God alone as the glorious one, God as a jealous God who would share his glory with no others in terms of an ontological ownership of glory. God alone is the one who deserves honor and praise and worship and obedience. God is the glorious being of heaven and earth. And the Reformation is nothing else if not a recovery of big God theology. And anywhere you have a big God, you will necessarily have a big doctrine of God's glory. You cannot have a big God who is not great in glory. You can have a diminished God, not the true God ultimately, who is not really that glorious of a being. And thus the Christian life shrinks as well in its importance. But the reformers saw glory in God alone, not in the Catholic Church, fundamentally. Secondly, the reformers taught that every Christian glorified God, not just priests and so-called spiritual workers. In other words, the reformers saw that every person is a priest unto God. Luther, in particular, is the one who recovers this biblical truth found in 1 Peter 2 and other texts. Everyone offers meaningful service to Christ, who is a believer. It is simultaneously true, of course, that the church is led by elders. We confess that with deacons serving the church. Those are the two institutional uh, classes who serve the church in terms of spiritual leadership or spiritual service. They are set apart toward that end by God for the church's good. But every Christian serves the Lord. Every Christian meaningfully honors the Lord by their Christian life. It's not some whose lives count, the ones who, for a 21st century context, are loudest in different platforms or have the most followers or the churches that have the most folks attending them. Every Christian glorifies God. Every local church glorifies God. It's not just some believers who really glorify God. Everyone glorifies the Lord. We're a kingdom of priests. Yes, it is true that God gives his gifts as he sees fit, and some believers have more gifts or more talents. If you want to use Matthew 25, the parable of the talents here, some believers have more gifts than others. Some believers have more fruit than others. Some believers follow God more consistently and honorably than others. These are real biblical realities. And yet, everyone who is in Christ glorifies God. So we're not watching priests perform ministry. We are all to be involved in serving the Lord on a daily basis. Third, the Reformers taught that all God-honoring work done by Christians glorified God. The Reformation is among other recoveries that are made in the midst of a compromised false church that did not preach the true gospel institutionally. The Reformation is also a recovery of the doctrine of vocation not just of having a career, not just of having a job that gives you a paycheck so that you can truly live life and be free on the weekend. No, the Reformation recovered the doctrine of vocation from the scripture, that you can build a God-honoring line of work over not just weeks or months, but ideally over years. You can be a craftsman, you can be a cultivator, fulfilling, in a sense, God's original call to Adam. What was God's original call to Adam in Genesis 2.15? To cultivate and guard Eden. 
Think of those terms. Think of the first one in particular. Adam was called to cultivate a garden, a great, beautiful, teeming with life garden. That was the original charge to the first man, the first human. Well, by extension in scripture, we are not just called to do work. That's how we often think about it. We are called to honor the Lord as much as we can, as much as we can figure this out. And it's not always easy through a vocation that employs our God-given talents and abilities. It's not always the case, of course, that we perfectly find the job that matches up ideally 100% joy in our heart every step of the way, every moment of the day for our work. That's not always the case. Some Christians do need to do work that is not necessarily their preference. But whatever work God gives us to do, we can approach it from the perspective of cultivation, of trying to do the best job that we can at it, of working not for man, but for the Lord. And the Reformation, to a significant degree, recovers the doctrine, biblically, of vocation. Fourth and finally, the Reformers reframed life away from man to God. In many different ways, the church had focused for centuries on man's wisdom, man's reason, man's natural theology, man's applause, man's scholarship, and man's achievements. And the Reformation, though not a perfect movement, and though not led by perfect men, reframes the church's attention away from man and puts the spotlight on God, God's glory as the end of all things. And really, you see this coming through most clearly in the recovery of sola scriptura, scriptural authority as the highest authority. There are different influences that shape our theology, that speak into our doctrinal formation and our spirituality. Yes, God has given us a mind, for example. God has given us the senses by which to experience the world that he has made, at least in ideal terms. And yet we are not to build for ourselves a theology that is based upon science or that is based even upon the senses detached from the knowledge of God that is immediately apparent to us as image bearers, even in a fallen world. We know that the heavens, for example, declare the glory of God, Psalm 19, 1. And so when we are looking at the world God has made, we don't have to puzzle through over a period of a decade or several decades whether God exists. We have immediate knowledge that God is real. No one is truly an atheist. We are all born theists. We are not born Christians. It's very important to note that. We do not affirm in affirming general revelation or natural revelation, the terms are basically synonymous, that we can look at the heavens, we can look at beautiful mountains or look at the ocean, and immediately we become a Christian. That is not at all the case. That's why we need the word of the gospel. That's why Paul tells us this in Romans 10, that we need special revelation in order, as sinners, to be saved. But fundamentally, this world is the theater of God's glory, and we are to focus our attention on God himself. We know he exists. He has given us, furthermore, a conscience that tells us right from wrong, that witnesses to us that our evil deeds will be judged at some level on a coming day. And so our charge as human beings made in the image of God is not to stay in that knowledge or 
to build our own knowledge, our own natural theology of God, per Thomas Aquinas and the Thomistic tradition. No, our challenge, as my friend Jeff Johnson has just published about in his book, The Failure of Natural Theology, is to go to divine revelation and to recognize that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 1-7, and build our Christian worldview and system of doctrine from the Scripture itself and from the Scripture alone as our authoritative source. In all this, we're talking about how the Reformers in the 16th century recovered an understanding of God and His glory as the center of Christianity Christian doctrine, Christian worldview, and Christian ethics. What are some applications then when you and I hold to a soli deo gloria, God's glory alone kind of mentality? What does that look like? How does that affect our lives? I just gave a talk for a conference here in Conway, Arkansas on the five solas. I spoke with uh, James White and Jeff Johnson here in Conway this very week, and I had the privilege of sharing some of these thoughts, though not all of them, that I have just covered and will cover with those who attended. We had several hundred people show up here in Conway. Praise God for that. Uh, God is doing a good work, and it was a real joy uh, as those who are involved with Grace Bible Theological Seminary uh, to promote that event and see so many seem to benefit from it. Here, though, I want to give you uh, my my thoughts on this in shorter form. Five applications of the recognition that God's glory alone drives the Christian life, not our glory. First application. Soli Deo Gloria as a mentality, not just a slogan we say when we talk about the Reformation, is all about a gospel-driven life. It's all about a gospel-driven life. In other words, you don't find glory wherever you think it might be because of your own personal opinions. The one who glorifies God as God intends is the one who knows God, knows God's gospel, is saved, knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, trusting in his death and resurrection for our forgiveness of sin and our raising unto life, and then lives in that knowledge by the power of God for the glory of God. So the God-glorifying life is the life that begins in the goodness of the gospel. That is where you go to see the glory of God shine. Wherever the gospel is being proclaimed and lived out, you can rest assured you are seeing God's glory extended. Now, it's important to note this. It may not look that way. Kingdom work, church life, may not look glorious. It may not seem impressive to eyes of sight, natural sight. You may look at your local church and you may think there's not a lot going on here. I mean, we don't have headlines. We don't have reporters showing up to profile the exploits of the ministry here. Is this really glorious at all? You may look at your own Christian life beyond the local church and think, it's not a spectacular life. I'm not a celebrity. I don't have a ton of influence or platform or something like this. Is this really a God-glorifying existence? If It doesn't feel that way on a good number of days. But you need to note that where God is moving through his gospel, he is being glorified. The gospel and divine glory are attached. You cannot break them. Wherever his gospel is advancing, his glory is covering the earth. 
wherever his gospel is advancing then, there's not a lack of glory there. There's always his glory there. And where his gospel is not truly advancing, but false knowledge of God is advancing, his glory is not to be found. It may look like there's impressive spiritual things happening, let's say in a church or in a professing Christian's life. But if that work is not driven by the true gospel given us in scripture and scripture alone, then it may look powerful and impressive for a time, but that is ultimately not a gospel-driven work and thus ultimately not a glory-yielding work. So know that where God's gospel is advancing and moving and being believed and trusted and claimed in saving faith and then in sanctifying faith that God and God alone gives, God's glory is going with it. Second application of a soli deo gloria mindset for today. Embracing God's glory as the banner over our lives means that we eat and drink for God's glory. We eat and drink for God's glory. What does this mean? Well, it means that the Christian life is supposed to be a sensory life. You're supposed to enjoy good smells. You're supposed to eat delicious food. You're supposed to drink uh, tasty drinks. You're supposed to have a day-to-day existence that, yes, is influenced by a fallen world. That's unavoidable for all of us. But nonetheless, has this deep sense of joy cutting through it. Christians should be joyful people, not just joyful on paper. We actually should manifest joy in our day-to-day life. Miserable Christianity does not do uh, the world any favors. Miserable Christianity is not at all much of a witness. Eeyore Christianity is not really commended in Scripture. Yes, there are hard times uh, when you have to grit your teeth and go through hardship, but even in the hard times, why do we go through them? Why do we persevere? We emulate Christ, who for the joy set before him, Hebrews tells us, endured the cross, went to the cross. Our life is to be a joyful life. We should be the most joyful people there are. Now, it is true that pagans living uh, according to the pleasures of the flesh, pleasures that seem lasting and endurable, but are only for a time, and that will fade. Yes, there are unbelieving and unconverted people around us who are seemingly living this joy-saturated life. But ultimately, those things will fade, even if it's only at the end of their life and then they enter a Christless eternity. They go to hell for all eternity. So there are people who compete with us, if you will, in the contest of joy on this earth. And they will, at least in a good number of cases, have more money, have more experiences, get to travel more, have a better job that they like more. Let it be said, being a Christian does not mean that you get everything that you want. They may, in fact, have far more that they want, and they may look much happier. But our joy is deep joy. Our joy, our happiness is not cheap. It is not cheaply bought, and it is not cheaply given. It is expensive, costly joy. It is purchased for us by the blood of Jesus Christ. And when it claims us as sinners, when God saves us, what he does is he brings us into a joy-captivated existence. Because it is the existence, of course, that centers in him. So that means that everything we do, we do for the glory of God. And that means that there is great happiness in all of our days, even as there is real sorrow in all of our days. Eat and drink 
to the glory of God. Every bite counts. All of it is a gift of God. Third, embracing a soli deo gloria mindset means that everything matters. This second and third point dovetail, as you can imagine. Everything matters thirdly. What did Martin Luther say many years ago? Even our seemingly secular works, excuse me, are a worship of God and an obedience well-pleasing to God. Luther went on to say that even domestic duties of, of of a mother, for example, may have no appearance of sanctity, of holiness, and yet these very works in connection with the household are more desirable than all the works of all the monks and nuns of the Catholic Church, be they ever so laborious and impressive. End quotation from Luther. What a beautiful quotation. Luther is saying that Christian motherhood, which involves different mundane tasks, is anonymous and grinding, uh, at least in a significant portion of daily duties, according to worldly standards, is glorious. Even seemingly secular works from the Christian are a worship of God, an obedience well-pleasing to God. These things may not look holy, may not look glorious, as I was talking about earlier, but they are more desirable than all the spiritual works, in air quotes, of those who do not truly know God. The work of monks and nuns. Luther is saying, Catholic doctrine may seem to yield a God-glorifying life, but it does not. It yields a false faith and false practice if you follow through on Catholic doctrine. Instead, you need to begin with justifying faith given you by God. And that means when God saves you by his grace, that all your life becomes a performance for the glory of God. And everything matters. Folding towels matters. Doing laundry matters. Going to work and showing up and doing your job and changing tires and working hard and writing out manuscripts and adjudicating lawsuits, and teaching people, and fitting pipes, and on and on it goes, matters. All of this work done by believers is glorifying to God. So there's no part of your life that is closed off from the glory of God as a Christian. There's no part you can say, well, I was glorifying God earlier in the day, but now I've entered the part of my day that is very sad and yields God no glory. No, God, I think, actually gets a great deal of glory when you undertake seemingly secular works from the standpoint of glorifying the Lord. I think we could say that That is actually a great opportunity to glorify God. That's a great opportunity to stand out from the world, isn't it? To do the tasks that, honestly, don't frankly bring you a lot of joy in the flesh and don't bring others a lot of joy and that everybody gripes about and doesn't want to do, but you attack from the mentality that you want to give God glory. This task, you say to yourself, is doxological. It's not only the ones I want to do that are doxological. Everything matters. All of life is glorifying to God. It's supposed to be. That's what doxology means. And so that's what I want to give God now and at every point of my job. C.S. Lewis said it well here. Most men, Lewis writes, must glorify God by doing to his glory something which is not per se an act of glorifying, but which becomes so by being offered. This is most people. This is most of us in the Christian life. Lewis goes on. The work of a charwoman doing humble uh, physical work and the work of a poet 
become spiritual in the same way and on the same condition. What a lovely quote from C.S. Lewis. This is true. A lot of our day-to-day activities are not seemingly glorifying to God. And this, by the way, is true even if you're in ministry. I'm in ministry. A good portion of what you do in ministry does not have an applause track behind it. You don't have people following you around with cameras, uh, recording how exciting your daily life is in ministry. Uh, Sometimes people don't even appreciate what you do in ministry. In fact, being in ministry means that you are following in the way of Christ in terms of publicly leading and teaching the word of God. And that means that you often get opposed and people don't stand for you, don't stand behind you, do dislike what you are doing. So let it be said that whether you're in ministry or not, and it is a great privilege to be in ministry, much of what you do on a day-to-day basis is not going to feel glorifying to God. But if you are doing it, from sincere Christian faith, it is glorifying God. And when you and I fail in this, when we do grumble, when we do complain, when we don't do the task as we should to God's glory, we confess that, we repent of it, and we seek to honor the Lord once more. Fourth application, embracing solely Deo Gloria, God's glory alone, as a mentality, means you play the long game. We're not trying to microwave our lives. We're not trying to superheat our lives. Everyone around us wants to make life so ridiculously exciting. If God gives us an exciting life, that's his decision. And he does for some, let that be said. And we all have exciting moments and those aren't bad moments. But in general, a lot of the Christian life needs to be conducted according to playing the long game. In other words, having a long-term perspective, a long-term cultivation mindset. I've talked about this previously on the antithesis, but we're tempted, especially today, I think, to have an acceleration mindset, to supercharge all our activity and make our lives endlessly entertaining. We all seemingly at times at least want to be in a reality TV show in which we are the star and our life is just going from one success to another. But in reality, the Christian life depends upon not an acceleration mindset. Yes, you need to push hard at times. Absolutely. You need to go hard for Jesus every day you live. But that actually leads into a cultivation mindset. You want to build something, not that's going to fall apart in a week, but that is going to stand the test of time, hopefully for generations by God's grace. Have you not experienced how frustrating it is to live in an acceleration-driven world? Didn't we used to buy appliances and they would last for, I don't know, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years? Don't you recall growing up with the same loud and yet functioning dishwasher over time that did not break down? I did, at least. Confessions of true dishwasher experiences here on The Antithesis, ladies and gentlemen. Is it not frustrating to pay far more than our parents paid or our grandfather and grandmother paid for a dishwasher and yet it breaks down? within a 12-month cycle. It's unbelievable. True confessions. Again, I I repeat myself here. Why is it that (laughs) dishwashers or refrigerators used to last for 30 years and now they break down within a two-year window? Well, there's a lot of different factors to name, but part of it is that our whole society, including even manufacturing itself, I suspect, is driven by acceleration, getting things out, making things cheaply, not making things well. What effect then could we have, and it will only be a long-term effect, if we seek to the glory of God, 
by the grace of God, to do things well. Not to build something fast, but to build something lasting. How would it affect our family building if we approached our family as a cultivator, if we're trying to cultivate our children, not, you know, with a little shovel uh, and spade or something like this, but with love, Christian truth, discipleship, attention, focus, disciplining our children when they do walk out of line. How would it affect us all if we were cultivators and not accelerators? Friends, if we're seeking God's glory, we need to play the long game. And then lastly, fifthly, embracing a soli deo gloria mindset means we need to give everything up in the world. We need to give everything up in the world. This doesn't mean that you go into some sort of hypergalactic space and you only pretend to be a human person on the earth. No, your feet are planted here. Remember, you're eating and drinking to God's glory. But it does mean that you stake nothing on this earth. Your world that you are in is not where you are going to find happiness and joy and meaning and purpose and satisfaction and comfort and safety. You find all these things in God and in God alone. God is your security. God is your rock. God is your hope. God is your meaning. God is your purpose. God is your identity in Christ. Christ is your all, as Paul says in Colossians 3. Your identity, your reputation, your so-called brand, everything about you is grounded in God. You're not a synthesis of worldliness and Christianity. Yes, you and I sin and we repent of that, but fundamentally, we are a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. We're not part old creation, new creation. We're a new creation that still sometimes stumbles in the ways of the old creation. Yes, let it be said and must confess sin and turn back to the good ways and the good paths. Friends, we need to just make a break in our thinking with the world. We need to give up this world. We need to recognize we're not here for our glory, for the world's applause. We are here for the glory of God. That is the only reason we draw breath. This whole enterprise is not predicated on us, our truth, our authentic experience, our desire for our life, our plan for our days. Yes, man plans his ways, but God directs our steps. God appoints everything that comes our way. God is not the author of evil because God is infinitely and totally and purely and only good. And yet God appoints all that comes to pass in our life. God appoints our successes and our joys, and God appoints our challenges and our trials. He really and truly does. If you follow the biblical God, why does he do so? For his glory. We need to conclude. In everything we do, In evil days like these, when many of us feel like life is unraveling, when many of us recognize that it it appears that there is a real attack on the church and it will probably only continue and pick up speed unless God executes one of the interventions, frankly, that he often loves to execute. So let that be said. We don't know what is coming, but we do recognize that the world definitely feels destabilized and strange and upside down. But here is the reality of scripture. It is in just those moments that God loves to give strength to his people, not so that their trials and challenges disappear, but so that his people endure in those challenges and trials and give him great glory. That is why we're here. We're not here to try to find the eject button and opt out, and leave. We are here as believers, 
for just this moment. Yes, there are real challenges and trials before us. They may increase in coming days. It matters not. Whether we are free, whether we are in chains, whether we uh, are knowing great liberties and privileges like we have, or whether those liberties are taken away, we set our sight on the glory of God. Whatever we do, eating or drinking, we seek God's glory and God's glory alone. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.